again so much for checking out this episode and welcome if you're a first time listener and welcome back if you've checked out any other past episodes. So this is technically episode three of the series but if you are new here you can check out the website arockandrollrabbithole.com. I have about 50 hours worth of content up there now. So I'm doing this episode to celebrate the life and music of Charlie Watts who sadly passed away overnight. Nobody would doubt that Charlie Watts was a giant in the rock world despite his wish to be a jazz drummer and his reluctance to be a rock star. Like a lot of people, I guess, I had no idea when I first heard Charlie Watts play on a Rolling Stones song as they have been with me forever and the 60s, 70s and 80s hits have just always been floating around in my influences and in my ears and in my DNA. And Charlie was obviously a big part of those songs and that sound. I do remember being maybe 16 or 17 and getting their live record Flashpoint and digging in hard backwards from there. Of all of my records, I easily have more Rolling Stones than any other band. Have about 60 vinyl records of theirs, including solo albums and compilations. And that's partly for how many things they've actually released, and partly for my love of vinyl, and of course, a big part is my love of their music. Just to show how many amazing songs Charlie has played on, here's just a quick look at the monster songs and stories that I've included in previous episodes so far. Under my thumb I know It's all 
Stones obviously have so many more great songs and albums. A lot of the stories I found in this episode are well known and way better told in books and documentaries. If you're a huge Stones fan, hopefully there's a few nuggets in the episode. And for casual fans or just fans of music, I hope you dig the stories. I'm not too interested in musicians' personal lives, mainly their musical story. So I'll just briefly touch on Charlie's early life and list some stories that I know or I have found while digging on the great man and the great loss that is Charles Robert Watts. Obviously, I can't do a Charlie Watts tribute without blending it into a Rolling Stones episode. As for a fan, they are so tied together. I think it's going to be a long one, so hang in there, but hopefully you get something out of it. So Charlie was born in Bloomsbury, London on the 2nd of June 1941 to Charles and Lillian Watts, and he also had a sister, Linda. As a kid, he really liked music, cricket, football and art, and he lived in Wembley as a kid, and his neighbour was Dave Green, a jazz bass player who's still playing to this day in 2021. Here's Charlie talking about his early days and then Dave and Charlie talking about when they met. But the first record that I... Actually, it was my uncle's record. It was uh, El Bostic's Flamingo. Uh, which was R&B, I suppose you'd call that. Okay. Which is... Well, it was. And I loved that and I don't know why. Yeah. And then I heard Jerry Mulligan's walking shoes and I wanted to play the drums. Yeah, I want to do that in a club in New York. And uh, I'd never realised quite how hard it all was to do that in a club in New York yeah. for nothing. And then, at the same time, me and the guy who lived next door, who's a bass player, we sort of started listening to records together. We were 12, I think, at the time, 12, 13. We were really about, oh, I would say, 14 or something yeah. like that, 14 years old. Could we... we no, maybe a bit older. Because I, 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 I was saying earlier on, there was a skiffle craze in, uh, in London in the fi- late 50s, and I got involved in that, like a, like a homemade band, you know, from, from out of school and stuff, you know. And that was a T-chest bass and a washboard and guitar. And uh, so I started about the age of 13 or 14. And then Charlie, I think, got your... When did you get your first drum kit? That, that was about... 13? 13, yeah. So it was, it was around the same that period. time. It was around that period, yeah. And I was in another skiffle band, as they called it. Yeah. So then we got Two. together. Then we, then we actually both... Played in a jazz band. A jazz 16. band, yeah. 16, not, yeah, 16, yeah. A local yeah. jazz band. We've and both, since then, yeah. we've always yeah. followed each other in the newspaper, yeah. really. Because <laughs> I used to know where he was playing through, you know... And I kind of knew where he was doing most of this. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie had a banjo as a kid, and here's that story. And Charlie also mentions his early love of fashion, which would continue to his death as he owned over 200 suits. And I had a banjo took the neck off it and started playing on the Sunday Times with a pair of brushes and then on this banjo skin because it was vellum. Then my dad bought me a set of drums. Did you want to be a professional musician? No, I didn't. I didn't. Why not? No, I don't know. I never. I couldn't be bothered to learn. I was more interested in what suit I'd wear. He got his first drum kit in 1955 and started playing along with his jazz record collection. Well, it came uh, two weeks before Christmas, but I wasn't supposed to know that. And it was in my auntie's bedroom, hidden under a blanket. But I went up there and saw it. We it was called a Broadway drum kit. 
How many piece? Th uh, just the two snare drum and bass drum. Were you a terror a when you got that? Yeah, I think anyone that has a son or daughter now, there's a lot of girls that play very good. The drums must be deserve medals, or at least half their income for the first eight years, because it's hell. I mean, you a bass drum going on the floor is unbelievable noise, especially in the hands of someone that can't play it. I mean, I'm not very good at it now, but then must have been hell. How, how did you teach yourself this style? I used to have a dance set, a uh, record player. That's, you know, with the, you know, where they drop down eight right. things. There, well, actually there. And you put a record on, and I'd be going along with it. Did you enjoy that? Here I did, yeah. Not here, in the ears, but in the mind, yes. I was playing with Charlie Parker, you know. After finishing high school, he attended art school until 1960 and had a job as a graphic designer and started to play jazz gigs around London. In 1961, Alexis Corner asked Charlie to join his band. And here's Charlie talking about Alexis Corner and how it led him to being in the Stones. He wasn't a very good guitar player and he wasn't a very brilliant singer, but he was a, he had terrific, if I use the word in the best sense, terrific taste in players and always chose the best. And I don't mean me. His, he would have Graham Bond, Ginger Bait, you know, he'd have everyone up there. All his bands have had great musicians in, whether they're like five years old or 55. He just had wonderful ears. And he always made it work somehow, Alexis. He, he was a good band leader, a great band leader, really. And so moving from him to this group who were to become known as the Rolling Stones, what was that like? Did you have the same kind of regard for them as musicians? Did you feel they were... As worthy. Well, I didn't have regard for many, I don't think. We were all just playing, and it was all a hodgepodge because Mick had played with Alexis. We used to play at a place in Ealing, and uh, Brian and Keith used to sit, and I knew Brian long before I joined the Rolling Stones. I knew Brian through Alexis, and a friend of mine used to sing with him and whatever, you know. There was like a crowd of about 30 people that were all playing. And, and uh, whichever five you shuffled out that week but that was a band you know i think it'd be someone's brother ronnie wood's brother i used to play in a band art wood's band was another one you know it's like a mixture of somebody else there's a wonderful guitar player called jeff bradford he used to play in another band and there was a, a, a wonderful tenor player called art Feeman. they used to play in it with a band again you know he, he plays in uh, stan tracy's octet so how by this process of musical chairs that you've just described did you end up being the one on the drum stool for the Rolling Stones? Because the Stones just carried on with playing. Would you turn on next week? Why don't you do... And somehow I like being with them. Socially? Yeah. I moved into Edith Grove, notorious Edith Grove. With Brian. It, was, it was Mick's apartment. In fact, he paid the rent. But three of us lived there off his back, <laughs> being Keith, Brian and me. And we just sort of used to go out a lot together and then it became, we had to go out because we were playing, you know, just we'd go out to play somewhere. So around about the same time as Charlie joined Blues Incorporated, childhood friends Mick Jagger and Keith Richards famously met again at Dartford Station. And to be precise, it was the 17th of October, 1961, almost 60 years ago. We bumped into each other on the train 
And the man had the records, you see, uh, Mick. Yeah. He always... <laughs> he had these records under his arm, and uh, I'm looking... And I'm wondering whether to mug him or not. <laughs> you know? These were blues records, I yeah, take it, from America. Muddy Waters record, uh, Muddy, Best of Muddies and the uh, Chuck Berry record. Uh, I mean, this was enough to mug somebody for, you know. But he decided, I said, no, we'll make friends. <laughs> and here's Charlie's thoughts on early rock and roll versus jazz and how he learnt to play the blues. Uh, to me, it was a naffish thing. The hippest thing was the green shirt and miles. I learned to play the blues via a man called Cyril Davis, who was in Alexis' band. He taught me how to, the word is pick it up, picking it up. All it is is like a little feel and into what you're doing. I learned to listen to the blues more when I was staying with Keith and Brian because that's all we used to do all day was listen to Jimmy Reed and Chuck Berry all day long and then go out and play it in the evening. And I learned how good Earl Phillips, who was a drummer with uh, Jimmy Reed, was there. He's a very, very subtle drummer. I didn't know anything about... Uh, Keith Richards taught me rock and roll, and uh, Brian and Keith taught me... I used to love Jimmy Reed, and we used to sit all day. See, I was working as well in the studio, design, you know, painting and that. And uh, I suddenly became unemployed, I think the word is. And... Uh, uh, We'd have, so I'd have the days free, and I was living with uh, Mick's hat. Mick was uh, the signee of this apartment, so, but we all lived there because it was cheap, you see, i.e. nothing. <laughs> so uh, we'd have nothing to do all day, but we'd just play these records over and over again. So I, and I learned to love Muddy Waters and people like that through uh, an intensive three-year crash course, you might say. I mean, Keith turned me on to how good Elvis Presley was. I used to hate him up until then. Bearing in mind I was about 21 then, 22. Elvis was like the least uh, sort of person I'd ever want, you know. I mean, Miles Davis was more what I would. That's what I considered someone, not Elvis, you know. Fats Domino was someone I considered, you know. But he turned me on to lots of other people like that. So Mick Jagger had a band. He started with a friend called Dick Taylor and the band was called Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. And after the train station meeting, Keith joined the band. The band made a recording to try and get some gigs and in March 1962, they read about the Ealing Jazz Club in the Jazz News newspaper and the story also mentioned Alexis Corner's Blues Incorporated. So the guys sent the recording to Alexis who liked it. April the 7th, 1962, Mick and Keith's band visited the Ealing Jazz Club where they met the members of Blues Incorporated, which at that time included Brian Jones, Ian Stewart and Charlie Watts. I got away. 
So to cut a short story shorter, by 1962, the Rolling Stones were formed with Tony Chapman on drums, Dick Taylor on bass, Mick singing, and Keith and Brian Jones on guitar, and piano player Ian Stewart. Bill Wyman joined on bass in December 62, and Charlie joined the Rolling Stones as the full-time drummer in January 1963. So here's some early career highlights. So on May 1st, 63, the Rolling Stones signed a management deal with Andrew Lou Goldham, and piano player Ian Stewart is dropped from the official lineup as he didn't fit the band's image. He did stay in the live touring band until his death in 1985, but we'll get to that a bit later. The band recorded their first single on May 10, 1963, and it was released on June 7, 1963, and they were off and running. The song was a cover of Chuck Berry's 1961 song, Come On, and it made it to number 21 in the UK. On May 15, 1963, the band signed with Decca Records, who had just turned down the Beatles a year before. July 7, 1963, the band record a mimed TV performance for a British TV show called Thank You Lucky Stars, which was aired on July 13, 1963. 29th of September, 63, the Stones begin their first UK tour, supporting the Everly Brothers and Bo Diddley. November 1st, 1963, they released a song written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon called I Wanna Be Your Man, which made it to number 12 in the UK. January 1964, the Stones begin their first UK headlining tour. February 21, 1964 is the first US release, which is a cover of Buddy Holly's Not Fade Away. Made it to number 48 in the US and number three in the UK. April 1664, the band's self-titled debut album was released and it made it to number 11 in America and number one in the UK. June 1st, 64, the band leave for their first US tour. 2nd of June, 64, the band's first American TV appearance with an interview on the Les Crane show. June 3, 64, is the band's first performance in the US on a variety show called Hollywood Palace and they played Not Fade Away and I Just Want to Make Love to You. And here's the host of the show that night, Dean Martin, introducing the performance and kind of being a little bit of a dick to them. He's rolling his eyes while he's saying how great they are and, and shitting on their haircuts. From England, who sold a lot of albums. All <laughs> <laughs> the Rolling Stones. I've been rolled while I was stoned myself. So. I know what 
to a hair pulling contest. I could swear Jackie Coogan and Skippy were in that group. Well, I'm going to let you in on something. You know all these singing groups today, you're under the impression they have long hair. Not true at all. It's an optical illusion. They just have low foreheads and high eyebrows. June 5th, 1964 is their first gig in the USA. They start a nine-date tour starting off in San Bernardino in California. And in July 1964, the band have their first number one single in the UK with its All Over Now, which also made it to number 26 in the US. Well, baby used to stay out all night long. She made me cry. She done me wrong. She hurt my eyes open. That's no lie. Here's Charlie Watts talking about whether or not he thought the band would last. <laughs> no, 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 every band I'd ever been in lasted a week. You know, I mean, you only lasted as long as the guy in the club or whatever would book you for, you know, so if they didn't like you, you know, it was two gigs and that was it. So I always thought it was going to last a week, then a fortnight, then, and it suddenly, that's what went to get back to the beginning, it's suddenly 30 years, and it's only when you say now, 30 years and you look back and you think, well, yeah, but it's not that long really, is it? Really? When the Stones came to the U.S. 1964, I guess it was, do you remember the kind of reception you got? Our first tour of America was uh, not the success. I mean, you know, you'd be in... I remember going to some place, I don't know where it was, but it was in like one of these cow palaces or something and there was like 200 people in this huge arena all around the bandstand and we drove in in a motorcade that was thanks to the Beatles I mean they expected us to be like that but it warmed up quickly and yeah we were very lucky we had a couple of big records so on the 14th of October 64 Charlie gets married to Shirley and here's Charlie talking about how they met a few years earlier at a band audition and I turned up for rehearsal I'll never forget that's where I met my wife. She came with the bass player, who were at art school together. They you went stole, to you art stole the bass player's girlfriend. No, no, he no, came no, with his girlfriend, okay. and she came with them. Ah, much so better. I, I, uh, much yeah, better. that's where I met her. Oh. Charlie and Shirley Watts remained married until his death this week. They had one child, Serafina, in March 1968, one grandchild called Charlotte. The band released their second album in America, 12 by 5, on October 1764, which made it to number three over there. On October 25, 1964, the band play the Ed Sullivan Show, performing Around and Around, and Time is on My Side. November the 3rd, 1964, the mayor of Cleveland, Ohio, bans the Rolling Stones from ever playing in the city again after a teenager falls from the balcony. And here's Charlie talking about those days. I mean, to walk on a stage and hear nothing 
except screams is just unbelievable really when you think about it and to actually be involved in it and you look round and it's Brian this screaming at and you've just seen him in the lavatory before you go you think it's it was a ridiculous sort of thing you know now you can put it down to oh it's show business and all that crap but to actually walk on there and see girls fling themselves off balconies I mean uh, it was amazing but once the once the curtain was drawn, I kind of... But I've always been like that. You know, once the curtain's drawn, I like to go away from that. And in those days, you couldn't do it. November 13th, 1964, Little Red Rooster is their second UK number one. And to this day is the only blues song to ever top the charts in the UK. I am the Little Red Rooster On January 17, 1965, Charlie Watts published a 36-page illustrated book called Ode to a High-Flying Bird, which was a tribute to jazz saxman Charlie Parker. The book was something that Charlie completed while he was at art school. And the Ode to the High-Flying Bird has nothing to do with the yet-to-be-born Noel Gallagher's post-Oasis solo band. Why is the band called High-Flying Birds, just out of interest? Um, I was at home doing the, doing the washing up. And uh, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, Man of the World, was on the radio. And uh, I thought, what if I was called Noel Gallagher something? And then uh, there's a track on a Jefferson Airplane album called High Flying Bird. And I, like a genius, put the two together. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> like a genius. <laughs> a few more quick stats. 13th of the second, 65. The third album, The Rolling Stones Now, is released makes it to number five in America and the single Heart of Stone makes it to number 19 in America, which was their first single released written by Mick and Keith. So this is what I call the end of phase one of the Rolling Stones, where they transition from mainly a cover band into an original band. And here's Keith talking about how it happened and manager Andrew Lou Goldham. It was Andrew that pointed out to us that if we didn't start finding a source of new material, that this thing wouldn't last because you, how long could you cover other people? Is there are many obscure great songs are you going to find? And so for me, definitely the greatest contribution Andrew ever did was lock Mick and me in the kitchen for a day and a night and I'm not letting you out until you've got a song. And the next single was their third number one single in the UK and their first self-penned number one. And it was The Last Time. next single is what I consider the start of phase two of the Rolling Stones, as the song was a monster hit and changed everything for them. 
went to number one in the US for four weeks in July 1965. Also was a number one in Australia and UK and a bunch of other countries and was voted number two on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. And here's Keith talking about the song. I, I, I wish all the songs could come this way, you know, whether you just dream of them and then the next morning, there they are, uh, presented you. But satisfaction was uh, that sort of miracle uh, that took place. Uh, I had a, I had one of the first uh, little cassette players, you know, Norelco, whatever, you know, Philips, uh, the same thing, really. But uh, it was a fascinating little machine to me, a cassette player, that you could actually just lay ideas down, and, uh, you know, wherever you were. I set the machine up and I put in a fresh tape. I go to bed as usual with my guitar and uh, and I wake up the next morning uh, I see that the tape has run uh, to the very end. And I said, well, I didn't do anything. You know? I said, maybe I hit a button while I was asleep, you know. So I put it back to uh, the beginning and push play. And there, in some sort of ghostly version, is uh, <laughs> I can't get no, that is vaccine. And, and so there's a whole verse of it. I won't bore you with it all. And, um, and after that, there's, uh, I don't know, 40 minutes of me snoring. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but there's the song, and it's embryo, and I actually dreamt the damn thing, you know what I mean? And I'm still waiting for another dream. Okay, so, so you, you bring this germ of a song, basically the first verse, to Mick Jagger, and then you flesh it out into a more complete song. What's the process between you and him in making a full song out of what came to you? Well, at least in those days, and pretty much uh, throughout the whole thing, is I'll come up with a riff, the idea, and maybe the subject matter, the title, and, uh, and then I'd go on to write the next one, and Mick would flesh out and uh, and finish it off and make it make it into a real song. I come up with ideas. Mick turns it into a finished product, you know. Um, and we were working so hard in those days that uh, you couldn't write them fast enough. So any idea I came, I'd shove it to Mick, and Mick would work on that, and I'd have another idea with a bit of luck. Yeah. Now, how did the line, I can't get no satisfaction, come to you at a time when you should have been having a lot of very satisfying, gratifying moments? Um, <laughs> darling, I don't know. I dreamt it. No, true. Okay. <laughs> I mean, nobody's ever satisfied, right? And, uh, and it was just a phrase that uh, obviously, you know, was buzzing through the mind. Uh, and whether you could express anything or, it, or enlarge on that idea of, uh, because otherwise I can't get any satisfaction. It's kind of, you know, sort of moaning. But if you, then you can take it and, uh, and expand it, in which Mick did brilliantly. Um, you know, there it is. I mean, these things are all made out of uh, just little sparks of ideas that come to you and, uh, and, you, and you're lucky to be around to grab them. And, uh, and that, that's kind of basically the process. Remember, you know, we had just had satisfaction out, and uh, I mean, that was the, the biggest hit so far, boom, worldwide. 
And Mick and I are sort of sitting back in a motel room somewhere. Well, oh, thank God for that. And there's a knock at the door saying, uh, where's the follow-up? <laughs> no. And then you realise you're really into a grind. It's, uh, you know, in those days especially, you needed a single every for 12 weeks. Yeah. Satisfaction was also the last song Charlie played live with the band at a full gig on August the 30th, 2019 at a Miami stadium. He did perform at least one more song that I will chat about later. So here's possibly the last drum notes Charlie ever played with the Rolling Stones from that Miami gig. album Aftermath was the band's first album to feature no covers with Mick and Keith writing all the album's songs and it went to number one in the UK and number two in the US. So we'll now jump through most of the rest of the 60s until 1968 which is my brain's phase three of the Rolling Stones. In this period they had three more number one singles in the UK or USA or both and that's Get Off My Cloud, 19th Nervous Breakdown and Paint It Black. In 1967 and 1968, the band also had some drug arrests. You can check out last week's episode 32, Arrested, for a deeper dig on those stories. So the albums from this period were 1967's Between the Buttons, number three in the UK, number two in the US, and Charlie drew the cartoons on the back cover of Between the Buttons. In 67, they also released their Satanic Majesty's Request, which also went to number three in the UK and number two in the US. In 1968, they released Beggar's Banquet, Number three in the UK, number five in the US. So phase three for me is 1968 to 69. Some highlighted songs from this period are Jumping Jack Flash, which made it to number one in the UK, number three in America, Street Fighting Man, Honky Tonk Woman, which was number one in UK and the US, Can't Always Get What You Want, and Sympathy for the Devil. On the 11th of December 1968, the band also filmed a concert show in a makeshift circus and called it the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. And it featured, among other performers, The Who, John and Yoko, Eric Clapton and Mitch Mitchell. It was meant to air on the BBC, but was scrapped and not released commercially until 1996. In Keith's book, he said he didn't think the Stones played very well on it. And it was also Brian Jones' last appearance with the band, and he was fired from the band on the 8th of June 1969. He was two things. He was not very nice, and he upset people very easily. He wasn't very pleasant, I mean. You know, when I think about it, Brian, when we were slogging away with no recognition, just doing what we're doing, you know, and, and quite enjoying it, but um, with no great uh, ambitions or anything, he was a great guy. Fame doesn't sit very comfortably on anyone's shoulders. 
um, but some people's shoulders doesn't seem to <laughs> sit on at all, and he was one of them. And I don't think it suited him. But within a very short amount of time, another guy was coming out, uh, a Mimi. <laughs> you know, started and uh, somebody you didn't suspect lurked in there, and this guy got bigger and bigger as the years went by, and also became more self-destructive now that I'm one to talk about that right but I'm still here yeah and uh, Brian went for it all the way and once he was down that path man there's no stopping him didn't turn up half the time when he did turn up it was not not in any condition to do anything to baby him no it was very sad I think he liked drinking I think he liked drugs but they weren't very good for him uh, I don't think they're good for anyone but he didn't have. He wasn't strong enough to, mentally or physically to take any of it, and of course he did. He did everything. Brian was one of those people that did everything to excess. It was very important to us the fact that we were going to go back out on the road uh, behind a new record that uh, that we resolved this thing with Brian. So Mick and I had to go down and sort of tell Brian and virtually like, "Hey, cock, you're fired." Yeah, the fact that he was expecting it made it kind of easier, I guess. You know, he wasn't surprised, and I don't really even think he took it all in. He was already up in the stratosphere. You know, it was kind of like, hey, you know. yeah. But there was no serious way that we can consider going on the road with Brian. So that was, uh, uh, but at the same time, nobody expected it. About midnight, Jones went for a swim with his Swedish girlfriend, Anna Volin, and another friend, Mr. Frank Thorogood. After a time, Mr. Thorogood and the girl went back to the house. When they returned, they saw Jones at the bottom of the pool, and they pulled him out. Charlie phoned me up. Phone went about three in the morning, and uh, I just, like, got off to sleep after about an hour. Charlie phoned me up, and uh, he just said, Brian died. I can believe it, yeah. And then Mick flew to Australia to do uh, Ned Kelly. Keith was working in the studio. Me and Charlie went to the funeral. And when we drove through Cheltenham, all the streets were packed with people. I'd never seen anything like it. It was like a coronation or something, you know? And like, all his family and relatives are all like tranquilized and everything. Everybody's crying, upset. There's thousands of fans everywhere. The sad thing was that he'd left the band and suddenly he was phoning up people and getting a band together and he was coming up for the sessions and telling us all about what, was, what he was doing and all that. I mean, he's still a very good friend. And then suddenly, wham, you know? Although it was a shock when it actually happened, nobody was really that surprised. There are people, I mean, I'm sure that everybody's got those feelings about certain people. Everybody knows people that... You just have that feeling that they're not going to be, they're not going to be 70 years old ever, you know. Not everybody makes it, you know. He got much nicer to what just before he died, you know, the last few years of his life. But I felt even sorrier for him for what we did to him then. We took his, his one thing away, which was being in a band. I thought that's my opinion. Here in Hyde Park, London, a memorial for Rolling Stones guitarist Brian Jones is getting underway. The concert is being called a tribute to Jones, who died two days ago in a tragic pool accident at his home in Sussex. 
Today, the Rolling Stones will publicly introduce Joan's replacement, 20-year-old Mick Taylor, who formerly played with John Mayall's Blues Breakers. The free concert is expected to draw over 200,000 Londoners. Brian's death is also covered in episode 13 and 14's Dead by 40, so check that out if you want a deeper dig on that story. So to end the 60s and what I call phase three of the Stones with Mick Taylor on guitar, the band headed to the US for a 24-date tour and the tour was a huge success and helped set the tone for future big profitable tours with better PA gear allowing bigger audiences and, and much more money. It had changed while we'd been, out, been off the road for three years, yeah. We suddenly had to work with PA systems and there's an audience there that's listening and instead of screaming chicks, you know, Instead of playing four blasts just to try and penetrate the audience, it's suddenly you got to. It's back to learning how to play on stage again. So for us, it was all like a school again, the 69 tour. Rolling Stones agreed to add a show to the end of the tour, and the concert was held at Altamont Speedway in Northern California and was meant to emulate the vibe of the Woodstock concert, which was held about three months earlier. We also did a deep dive on Altamont in episode 18, I think, but here's a quick story. In December 1969, at the Altamont Speedway near San Francisco, the Rolling Stones headlined a free concert marking the end of a decade of love. They put the Hells Angels in charge of security. The uh, Hells Angels, who were supposed to be the uh, Praetorian Guard for the Rolling Stones, actually uh, became part of the menace rather than part of the controlling device. The Angels' idea of crowd control was simple and brutal. The violence was recorded by a documentary film crew. As night fell, a crowd of up to 300,000 waited for the main act. It was a fiasco. My personal opinion, it was 100% the Stones' fault. I think it was like an hour, hour and a half late coming onto the stage and when they come out they search the stage to do that they had to come over the top of our pipes when they done that we jumped off the stage and beat them back things got out of hand a black guy meredith hunter i believe it was got on the stage he got pushed off of the stage he pulled out a gun he fired it into a crowd of us and somebody killed him what died at that moment was the idea that the rolling stones and what they represented in terms of bringing together young people in protest just obviously wasn't there, that they really couldn't co-opt the services of the Hells Angels. That dead body represents the end of a very long season of love. And here's Charlie Watts talking about the vibe that day. It started off as a very beautiful, you know, laid-back California day. I remember walking through a very relaxed, nice crowd. I mean, it was the love and peace bit as well. And then it all got very nasty. And I remember walking on stage and uh, these guys grunting something like out the way and the whole crowd went like that. Uh, the Altamont thing was like really nasty and very nasty experience, but it still doesn't really completely sully the, the, uh, the tour for me. That was one gig that went really wrong. And it was outside of the experience of that tour also, which, as I said, a tour of arenas. 
yeah, it was a complete mess. And um, you know, we were partly to blame for not checking it out, but the, it, it was just totally disorganised. It was sort of the... You expected everyone in San Francisco that it was going to be, you know, because they were so mellow and nice and organised that it was going to be all those things, but of course it wasn't. Rolling Stone magazine called The Gig... Rock and Roll's all-time worst day, December 6, a day where everything went perfectly wrong. The 1970 documentary film Gimme Shelter covers the Altamont incident. So phase four for me is pretty much the 70s, where I think the Stones produce their best music. Despite how much I love the 60s Stones and highlights from the 80s until now, the 70s is where the darker themes started in 65 to 69 culminate into great, diverse and deep music, while still releasing great memorable hits. So some big events in the early 70s were on March the 4th, 1971, the band moved to France for tax purposes. The reason we left England, you know, we like, became tax exiles because we were totally broke and you know, we owed the Inland Revenue more money than we could possibly earn when income tax was like 90% of where it was. It was a pity we had to leave, I wouldn't have been my choice. When we left England and went to France, and the end of the 60s, we had no money. On a million dollars, you got left with 70,000. And you owed that more than that to the, to the tax people, so you couldn't earn it, so you had to leave. But see, then you become bad boys again. They, you get accused of becoming tax exiles to line your pockets, you know. Same old thing again. March 26, 1971, the Stones adopt the Lapping Tongue logo on a backstage pass for a gig when they returned to play the Marquee Club in London. We covered a, a little bit of the Marquee Club's history a few weeks ago in the Bon Scott episode, so you can check that out. I've heard many stories by YouTube cock goblins saying that the logo was designed by Andy Warhol, but it actually was designed by English art designer John Pache. Andy Warhol did, however, conceive the photo idea for their next album, which was 1971's Sticky Fingers, which featured wild horses, which we heard stories about in episode 25, and brown sugar. Next up is 1972's Exile on Main Street. Exile started a run of eight number one US albums, which lasted until Tattoo You in 1981. Exile was made up of recordings made from 1969, before Sticky Fingers, up to March 73, and is seen by many as the best Rolling Stones record. But I don't want to play that game, as no one should care what I think, and they have so many great, great records. We did hear the second and last single from Exile in episode one, which is a song called Happy, sung by Keith Richards. Here's a bit of the demo of Tumbling Dice, a song that was originally titled Good Time Women, one of Keith's great intro riffs on the final recording.
song Main Street was ranked number seven on the list of Rolling Stone's greatest albums of all time and is definitely a masterpiece. Exile on Main Street was followed up by Goat's Head Soup in 1973. That had a small hit Heartbreaker and also a monster hit that we heard in episode two's Girls Names. So check out episode two for the story of Angie. the band released It's Only Rock and Roll, which was Mick Taylor's last album with the band. And here's Mick Taylor years later talking about that time. All in all, was being in the Stones a great gig or was it hell? It was both. Heaven and hell. Roller coaster ride. No, but seriously, it was mostly a lot of fun, but towards the end of my period with the Stones, it got very, um, it got very laborious and monotonous and a lot of people, um, there were a lot of people around the Stones that seemed to drag them down and hold them back. And, uh, you know, obviously the um, certain people's addiction to drugs didn't help. And it was really became very difficult, especially for Mick Jagger, who just seemed to be capable of um, overcoming anything. It, he found it very difficult to... Um, get the album the albums finished and the albums made so he was extremely annoyed when i left and uh but i i think or at least i hope he's forgiven me by now because it hasn't really affected their uh their um long-term financial stature <laughs> and here's his replacement ronnie wood talking about that time and he also tells the story of where mick and keith's duo nickname came from do you remember when you heard that, that, that Mick Taylor was deciding to uh, leave the Stones? Yeah. You heard that news? I remember the night. You do? We went yeah. to Robert Stigwood, there was a party going on for Eric Clapton. And then, unknowing to me, uh, I was in the back seat with Mick, and Marshall Chess and Mick Taylor were in the front seat, uh, talking very sort of whispering and sort of very heavy and all this. I wondered what was going on. And apparently that night he told him he was leaving and I knew nothing about it. And uh, the Stones didn't want to break up the faces. They didn't want to say, hey, would you know, leave that lot and come with us. But which did you think? Which was very you... nice and really, yes. they could have been cutthroat about it. For sure. But when you heard that uh, Mick was leaving, was there even a fantasy glimmer like, ooh, I'd like a shot of that. Or... A glimmer, that's how the Glimmer Twins got their name. People on a, a liner, right? The yeah. Stones were on a cruise. Yeah. And these older people kept coming over and saying, I'm sure I recognize your face. Uh, and they were saying, Oh, no, you don't. No, no, we're nobody. And they say, 
Are you sure? Can't you even give us a glimmer of who you are? Uh, <laughs> great. Right. I was going to ask Nick that I never did, so we got it from your tourist. Like, okay. But anyway, when you were in the car and you heard, you know, when and you heard that, was there just a was there a moment that you thought? No, because in the car, I still, even when we arrived at Stigwoods, we I still had no idea what was going on. I just thought they were sort of talking privately, you know. And later on in the evening, not very much later, Mick Taylor split, you know. And uh, so it's party. Yeah, I said, Where, where's he gone? You know, Mick said, oh, I, I don't know. I said, that's very unusual. I mean, he's only been here an hour, you know. The whole party's just about to happen. So I just ruled it out that he wasn't feeling well or something. So just a quick note on the title track and first single from It's Only Rock and Roll and a story I missed in episode 20, and that's that the band The Faces, including Ronnie Wood, actually played the rhythm track of the song, recorded at a jam session with Mick, David Bowie and The Faces. Jagger took the tapes to Keith Richards and he keithed them up a bit and it was released as is. So the Stones started auditioning new guitarists, including Jeff Beck, Ronnie Wood, Wayne Perkins, Harvey Mandel and Rory Gallagher, while recording their next album, which along with ACDC's Back in Black was the inspiration for episode 15's Black and Blue songs. The album Black and Blue featured a song I've always loved, mainly for the piano and keys intro and mixed vocal, and also definitely for the way Charlie comes in on the drums and the groove and the fills he plays. So here's a little bit of the demo for Fool to Cry. Thank you. 
a part of town But I go see her sometime We make love so fine I put my head on her shoulder She said, tell me all the trouble You know what she said? She said, one of Charlie's ideas, the band announced a North American tour and introduced Ronnie on guitar just as a touring guitarist by performing Brown Sugar on the back of a truck on Fifth Avenue in New York City. The band asked journalists to meet them for a press conference and had a comedian, Erwin Corey, answer questions with long-winded, nonsensical answers. I remember turning the corner and playing Brown Sugar. We had all the equipment set up on the back. We had all the press gathered in a restaurant and they thought the Stones were going in. And so we just drove by playing Brownsuit and they were all there running out of the restaurant with their pads. It was actually Charlie's idea. Jazz in the old days in Harlem, they used to do promotions for their gigs on flatbed trucks. Because every time we try and do a piece of promotion now, we always refer back to that as being the best one. And on February 27, 1977, Keith was arrested for heroin in Canada. And we covered this story in last week's Arrested episode. Rolling Stone guitarist Keith Richards was arrested last night at the Harbour Castle Hotel here in Toronto. He is being charged with possession of drugs. They had to wake me up to formally arrest me. And that took about two hours of dragging me out. Bam, bam. So I got with like rosy cheeks and uh, he's awake. You are under arrest. <laughs> Oh, great. Yeah. I looked at the old lady and said, I've seen about seven years, babe. Keith Richards appeared in court today here in Toronto. He's been charged with possession of heroin. A conviction on possession or trafficking charges could result in Richard serving up to seven years behind bars. I was down and out there in Canada and Toronto stuck there, right? And America let me in to clean up. And they gave me a medical visa to clean up, and I think, and that amazed me, you know, because you don't ever expect uh, from governments uh, the helping hand, you know. Cold turkey's hard, but it ain't, it's only three days of climbing wars, and then the fourth day you start to feel better. After that, you're on your own, you know, it's... Uh, and it's a matter of what it is you want to do, you know. I, I got off after that by... Uh, See, after 10 years on that stuff, you get, uh, you live in this other world, you know, I mean, where everybody you know is, everybody you know is one, you know? and uh, so the cats have come around trying to sell your stuff again, you know, and so I started to get off. My, t- my high for a while was watching their faces when I said, no, wait uh, God, man, hey, man, just a taste, man, yeah. And just when they couldn't make a sale to watch their face, that would be my high. Mm. Next up, the album Some Girls was released in June 1978 and it was Ronnie's first full album with the band. I don't know. He said, would you join? I said, 
Of course I would, in a minute, but I don't want to let the faces uh, down. He says, no, I don't want to split that up. He said, either. He said, I'm in a real predicament. I mean, when Ronnie walked in the room, just played by numbers, eh? It's, it's obvious, everybody else uh, that was up for the gig agreed, you gotta, you know, so it was, uh, there we are, lumbered with him, still are. We got very, very sort of spread apart in the mid-70s, and along came Mr. Wood, and literally pulled it all together. He kind of was like a catalyst. The album's cover had some controversy, some of the people or their estates on the cover sued for their images being used without permission, including Lucille Ball, Farrah Fawcett, Judy Garland, Raquel Welsh and Marilyn Monroe. The band quickly reissued a new cover that removed all the celebrities' images except for George Harrison's. The reissued album cover had the words Pardon Our Appearance, cover under reconstruction. The title track also had some controversy, which I discussed in episode 6 F-Bombs, and the album which I absolutely love, was nominated for a Grammy for Album of the Year. No other Rolling Stones album has ever been nominated for Record of the Year. Here's the verse of Some Girls that caused all the controversy. Some girls also had this song we covered in episode 19, and here's another demo version for Beast of Burden. Some Girls also had the last Rolling Stones song to ever hit number one in the US, and that was in 1978, and the song is a great Charlie Watts groove. Miss you. And I'm 
So that gets us to the end of the 70s and the end of what my brain classes phase four of the Rolling Stones. And now we head into the 80s, which is phase five of the Rolling Stones career in my little brain. In June 1980, the band released Emotional Rescue, featuring two very different singles, the title track with Ronnie on bass, and the trashy rocker, She's So Cold. August 1981 saw Tattoo You being released and it was the last album to reach number one in their eight US number one albums in a row. It covered a little bit of a story of Waiting on a Friend in episode 24 and the album featured the huge single Start Me Up. And I've always loved the unusual snare placement of the first snare in Start Me Up. Start Me Up started as a song idea in 1975 called Never Stop.
There's a man there you know He's the host of the show And you'll find that he fucking hates choirs Ugh, this one is particularly disturbing. It's a Bon Jovi-fused wholemeal bucket of vegan choir fuckery. Oh God, I just keep getting worse. Just because you can doesn't mean you have to. And even if you have to, doesn't mean you have to put it on the fucking internet. And even if you put it on the internet, doesn't mean you have to make it public. There's so many internal goalkeepers that could have stopped that going through. Part of Charlie's style is to rarely hit the hi-hat and the snare at the same time, which is a habit he didn't even realise he did until it was pointed out to him years later. This technique definitely adds to his magic and to the Stones' groove. Here's Charlie and drum great Jim Keltner talking about it. I know you've told it many times before, but we have a lot of young students on here. As far as the backbeat situation in story, would you mind giving us a quick scenario of... of Raising the arm when you play the backbeat in me, you're in, yes, in your interpretation. <coughs> I never yeah. knew I did it. He's the one who sat behind me when, <laughs> when Bobby Get, took us and said that I did it. I never, and me, then I saw it on okay, Lita actually. Let, let me uh, answer that then yeah. for, you, for Charlie, okay? Because I've done this so many times. Uh, here's what happened as far as, as, far as I know uh, I was uh, hanging out with uh, Levon helm of the band they those guys were recording at sammy davis jr's home in the hollywood hills for and and i never can remember the the albums but it was the album that had uh, the night they drove old dixie down oh yeah yeah and uh and so anyway we were hanging out and uh and i i watched him uh play and he would play the backbeat down like this and he'd raise the the off the hi hat at yeah. the same, so it would be right, and so which is what Charlie does, and so uh, I watched that so often, and I, and I was so influenced by Levon at that time because that that was right at the time when I was playing way too busy, and I was real infatuated with like because my hands were getting good, and and I was you know overusing it in records, I could hear it. And I didn't, I knew it was wrong. You know, I, I, it wasn't what Hal did. It wasn't what Ringo did, you did. Uh, you know, it certainly wasn't what Levon did. So, so I wanted to be more like that. So um, um, I started doing that just, and, and that's my point earlier about osmosis. When you see somebody doing something that's, that affects you, you, you can't really help it, but copy yeah. it sort of in a way, you know. Yeah. Uh, when people talk about copying, I mean, it's inevitable. Yeah. You know, you're going to copy stuff, period. Sure. Uh, and so anyway, so I started doing that. And then Charlie told me, you told me years later, not, not that many years later, you told me you were watching the Bangladesh movie and you saw me doing it. Yeah. 
And you, and again, that same kind of thing, you started doing it. And then Steve Jordan saw you doing it (laughs) and Steve started doing it. So Steve does that. So, and and then after that, who knows how many people, I've seen a lot of guys on TV do it, a lot of young guys playing it, you know. Oh, really? It's just, uh, it's kind of. um, I was never conscious I did it though. I think the reason I did it was to, because uh, to get the hand out of the way to do a bigger Yeah, that's, so that's, the that's the way Levi, that's the reason Levi. Oh, oh, yeah. More huge tours followed in the early 80s and the band released Undercover in November 1983. Tensions started to rise between Mick and Keith and would continue to intensify in the years following. And their great friend and piano player, Ian Stewart, passed away in 1985. Here's Ronnie and Mick talking about Stu. None of us really believe that he's gone, and I, I'm sure that even the tour that we're doing now, the Steel Wheels tour, every night every group member thinks of him and, and in a way dedicates his show to him, and we think he's, he's up there criticising us, you know. It's very hard to remember when he wasn't there, but we used to rehearse in pubs and Steel would be there, and he was a lovely boogie-woogie piano player. And uh, he was very different from us because he was so straight and we were all a bit crazy. So Mick and Keith were hardly talking during the recording of 1986's Dirty Work. And during filming for the clip of One Hit to the Body, the director could feel the tension. And he made Mick and Keith kind of do a rock and roll dance, threatening fight kind of weird thing. If you watch it, you can actually see a little bit of anger in their eyes. I've put the link to the clip on the Golden Magic tab of the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com, if you want to check it out. Or you can just fucking Google it. So Mick had released his debut solo album in 1985, She's the Boss, and followed it up with an album that I love, Primitive Cool, in 1987. And Keith had also released Talk Is Cheap in 88. And Charlie Watts also released a live jazz album in 1986 with the Charlie Watts Orchestra. Do you enjoy this bit of the job? What, doing these things? Yeah. No, not really. I think they're a waste of time, actually. But you sort of go along with it because it's a good idea to sell a lot of records? Well, we're told, aren't we, by the industry, this is the way to sell records. Let's talk about your other career. Uh, apart from the Rolling Stones, you run other career. the Charlie Watts Big Band. Oh, or orchestra. What do we call it? Tell us about it. What? Tell us about the Charlie Watts Big Band. That's, that's what it is. And is it, it, it's a really large band, isn't it? It brings yeah, together... it's enormous. It's called Self-Indulgence. Does it cost you a great deal of money to run that? It did do, to start with. It doesn't now. Are you pleased at the success that's had? Well, yeah. It's nice. People want to listen to saxophone players. And... Does it take a great deal of adjusting when you come to play with the Rolling Stones no, after doing something like that? the same thing, really. Well, really? Yeah. You have to play the drums, isn't it? As well as you can. How long can you see the Rolling Stones keep them going for? As long as someone wheels you out, I think. I really don't. I mean, I thought, uh, when I joined them, I thought there's another six months. It's 
Three years was the longest I've been with bands. What are you doing between? Goes on and on. What are you doing between making records? Nothing. I understand you, you collect things. Yeah, that's easy though, isn't it? You have great enthusiasms outside the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. So. Or is it possibly true to say that other members of the group don't have those in the same way? That they're more devoted to the group than you are? Or is that not true? I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean? I don't follow that. Well, the, the other members of the Rolling Stones, for them, the Rolling Stones are more important than well, the Well, I do have a life outside of them, but I always have had. But I think they've got a life outside. I don't, I don't really look at The name Rolling Stone doesn't mean anything to me. What do you mean by that? Well, it doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, it's just Keith and me, Ronnie and Bill. What would you, be your attitude if uh, there was to be talk of going on tour in the, near, in the near future? What do you mean, shameless? Uh, my attitude? I don't know. I mean, it's a gain, you know, if they said we're on the road, I said, I don't know, really. I mean, obviously, uh, you get involved in it, setting it up and all that. But, I mean, it's a lot of work, I it's not something you relish. What? Going on tour. I do, it doesn't, it's just, it's work, isn't it? I mean, I just don't think about it, actually. That's not to. But I mean, dead years ago, I thought about it. So Charlie mentioned collecting in that interview, and although he didn't have a driver's license, he collected cars. So anyway, all the solo albums, etc., led to rumours that the band was on its last legs and probably going to finish up. And even though Charlie was the quiet Rolling Stone, he had his demons and he managed to kick them in the mid-80s. He knew he had a problem when he was told to pull himself together by Keith Richards. I did a take. I used to take uh, heroin, I suppose. And I drank a lot and then uh, they all go together. But, you, you know, with all those things, you always think you can handle them, whatever it is. And then I found I was at the bottom of this thing and I couldn't stop. I've, I've got to a point where I realised it was I was going to lose everything. I just stopped. I stopped everything, including eating. Um, eating properly. It was a stopping thing. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, all on a... You know, I'm like that. Just... And I lived on... <laughs> it sounds like a Tony Hancock. Uh, water, sultanas, and uh, nuts. For about six months... I mean, I was another... Per- I was Dracula in the mid-'80s. I used to go out at night, and it was ridiculous. It was a life of a junkie without being really down there. I saw it before I really got there. And when Mick refused to tour after releasing Dirty Work, instead toured with his solo band to promote She's the Boss and was playing a bunch of Rolling Stones songs in the set, it looked like the band could have been finished. And Keith described this time as World War Three. And here's Mick answering a question about whether the Stones would continue. Well, I think the Rolling Stones are a wonderful uh, institution. It's a bit like an, a sort of nice English country house, and it sort of leaks a bit, but people still want to see it. And I think the Rolling Stones still uh, will go on. I hope they will. And I hope they go on and make more records and tour again. But right now, this is what I'm doing for this year. I was feeling very kind of stultified within the Rolling Stones and I felt I had to go and work with some other people to get a bit revitalised. And I think it actually worked. Though it created a tremendous ruckus within the Rolling Stones, which was totally unnecessary, really. And I think that everyone made much too much of a fuss about it. 
and I think everyone should have been a bit more indulgent. That's why I was so surprised when Keith was so upset when I wanted to do something outside the band. He'd already done this thing with the new Barbarians. Hell, we needed a break. You know, Nick needed to find his own feet out there and see what it's like if he thought he could live without us. And I had to find out and do it myself too. And we both grew up a lot doing and finding out certain realisms. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to go a little crazy inside the Rolling Stones bubble if that's all you do. The one thing I never wanted to do was solo record until I started doing it. And by then, working with all these guys, I'd found the nucleus of another great band. Here's a famous quote from Charlie in the 80s about being a Rolling Stone. Work five years and 20 years hanging around. <laughs> There's also a great story that happened in late 1984, and I'm just going to read this from Keith's book called Life. We were in Amsterdam for a meeting. Mick and I weren't on great terms at the time, and I said, come on, let's go out. And I lent him the jacket that I got married in. We got back to the hotel about five in the morning, and Mick called up Charlie, and I said... Don't call him, not at this hour. But he did, and he said, where's my drummer? About 20 minutes later, there was a knock at the door. There was Charlie Watts, Savile Row suit, perfectly dressed. I could smell the cologne. I opened up the door, and he didn't even look at me. He walked straight past me, got hold of Mick, and said, never call me your drummer again. He then hauled him up by the lapels of my jacket and gave him a right hook. Mick fell back onto a silver platter of smoked salmon and began to slide towards the open window and canal below. It takes a lot to wind that man up. Never call me your drummer, you're my fucking singer. And here's Charlie lightly touching on that story and also the roles of the guys within the band that ultimately holds them together. Keith is the leader, he's the heart. And uh, Mick is just the best front man in the world. I mean that in the nicest possible way. I think he's the best thing on stage in the world, apart from probably James Brown when he was younger. I mean, actually working an audience, 50, 60,000 people, just standing in front of three guitar players, or two guitar players and a bass player, and, and, and singing. Mick is the best thing in the world, I think. I've ever seen. And Ron? Ron is the soloist and uh, he's a very nice humour. He's very comfortable to be with. He's a very nice man really. He's, he's funny and you need that type of thing, I think. Your role in the band, you talked about Mick and Keith and Ron, what's Charlie's role? No, I mean, I always consider myself a drummer, you know, and uh, so that's to keep the time and help everybody else do what they do, you know. I don't really like solo type things, drums and that. I mean, it, I, I do sort of solo records, but they're, they're sort of jazz type things, you know, uh, and I do them because it's... I don't do that with the Rolling Stones. But what, what I do with those, I don't really know. I never look at myself like that. 
You don't look at yourself as just a drummer. I do, yeah. I, I read one story, true or not, that, that Mick had referred to you as the drummer in the band, and you knocked on his door and in no, no, certain uh, terms. No, no, he, he used to, to annoy me. He referred to him as, me as his drummer, and at one time used to annoy me because I always thought he was my singer. In a way, that's right. Yeah, you're, they're both right, aren't they? That's what I mean. <laughs> so it was just something that annoyed me at the time. Uh, the, the business side is quite changed. an honour, really, if you think about it, for anyone to say, this is my something. But it pissed me off. Mm. <laughs> and you let him know it. Yeah. So let's jump forward to 1989 and the Stones, including Mick Taylor, Brian Jones and Ian Stewart, were all inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. New York City tonight, the music world honors its own as the Rolling Stones will be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This will be the first time Mick Jagger and Keith Richards have been seen in public together since their much publicized split a couple of years ago. The Stones are being introduced by Pete Townsend of The Who. There's some giant artists here tonight, but the Stones will always be the greatest for me. They epitomize British rock for me. And even though they're all now my friends, I'm still a fan. Guys, whatever you do, don't try and grow old gracefully. It wouldn't suit you. I must say, I'm very proud to work with this group of musicians for 25 years. The other thing I'm very proud of is the songs that Keith and I have written over the last 25 years. John Cocteau, John Cocteau said, I'm going, said that Americans are funny people. First you shock them, then they put you in a museum. So on behalf of the Stones, I'd like to thank you very much for this award. So Mick and Keith must have worked out their issues and the band released Steel Wheels in 1989 and headed off on the Steel Wheels Urban Jungle Tour, which was 115 concerts, twice as many gigs as they had ever done on a tour and was the biggest grossing tour ever to that point. And here's Charlie talking about some doubts about the tour. We were sceptical of what would happen when we walked on stage, you know, whether people would like you as much as last time and all that, you know. And it's amazing how they just love the Rolling Stones. I don't know why. After the tour, the band took a break until 1996. And during the break, Charlie released two jazz albums. Mick, Keith, Ronnie and Bill also released solo albums. And Steel Wheels was the last record to feature Bill Wyman on bass, and he officially left the band in January 1993. We're still great friends. I still see them and chat to them. But I just really don't want to do it anymore. I've done enough. It's 30 years. Bill Wyman has said, that's it. That's pretty dramatic. Yeah. It's taken us a bloody long while to find a bass player, but carry on. Well, but that is, in most people's opinion, the key partnership in a rock and roll band, drums and bass. Mm. This is a guy you've played with for an awfully long time. How difficult is it going to be to pick up and move on? Uh, oh, pick up and move on? No, that's not hard. Whether it's going to be as good as with Bill, I don't know. I'll have to wait and see. It, I think well, I, uh, 10 years ago, it would have been devastating. Now, 
I'm not quite so. Personally, for me, it's devastating because I like Bill Wyman a lot. I used to go and sit in his room, and he's a very amusing man. I mean, whether he's being serious, to me, when Bill's being serious, he's totally very amusing. So I, he's, and I'm used to him, and I, you know, I mean, it's part of being being on the road. Is I'd go and knock on Bill's door, whatever's going on, we'd laugh or something. The band then released Voodoo Lounge in 1994, which made it to number one in the UK and Australia and number two in the US, followed by another record-setting tour. And in September 97, the band released Bridges to Babylon, and apparently Mick and Keith were not talking during the recording and were rarely in the studio at the same time. Their relationship was repaired and they headed out on another successful tour and followed up with a few greatest hits tours. Here's Charlie's views on touring and some of the reasons he continued. Tours are fun, you know. They're, they're hard work. And, and because of the mixture of people thrown together, if they're good, a lot of people, they're, they're funny, they're fun. People, you never forget them. They're all sort of different. They're lucky, you know. I mean, we travel and can afford to stay in good places. You know, I'm, I'm the sort of person that shuts the door all the time. When it shuts and you're on your own, man, that drives me crazy. You know, it's like it's very difficult to keep a, a marriage together when you're on the road. And it was very difficult, not so much now as it was earlier. Because the, the nice thing about now is you, one can di- dictate, you know, I mean... It, Roughly what you're doing, you know, then you couldn't. I say then, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you couldn't. It's harder on people around you, like my wife, my daughter, and I think it's harder on them. It's a very lonely life. I mean, I don't like living out of suitcases. I hate being away from home. I always do tours thinking they're the last one, and at the end of them, I always leave the band. Because of what I do, I can't play the drums at home, so I walk about with my hands. And to play the drums, I have to go on the road. And to go on the road, I have to leave home. And it's like a, a terribly vicious circle that's always been my life. So Charlie Watts was diagnosed with throat cancer in June 2004 and got the all clear, recorded their next record, A Bigger Bang, which is a great record in my opinion. And the record was released in September 2005 and they hit the road again on their biggest grossing tour ever. It's still the fourth highest grossing tour ever behind Ed Sheeran's 2017 tour, which is at number one, U2's 360 tour of 2009, which is at number two, and Guns N' Roses' Not In This Lifetime tour starting in 2016 at number three. I think I saw all those tours. And since the Bigger Bang tour, they've done a bunch of other tours and even had Bill Wyman and Mick Taylor joining them for guest spots over the years. They released a covers album, Blue and Lonesome, in 2016. And on the 5th of August this year, which is 2021, it was announced that Steve Jordan, who had played on Keith's solo albums, would fill in for Charlie when the No Filter Tour resumed after COVID. Up until then, Charlie had never missed a gig in the Rolling Stones history. And Charlie released a statement that said, For once, my timing has been a little off. I am working hard to get fully fit, but I have today accepted, on the advice of the experts, that this will take a while. And on the 24th of August, in the middle of the night, my phone started pinging and I knew something was up. 
Breaking news. Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts has died. His publicist said Watts passed away peacefully in a London hospital surrounded by his family. Watts joined the Stones early in 1963 and remained over the next 60 years, helping the band reach international superstardom. But his love for jazz never took a back seat. He headed his own jazz band and took on numerous other side projects. Watts had announced he would not tour with the Stones this year because of an unidentified health issue. Charlie Watts was 80 years old. So I'm going to finish up there because I've been chipping away at this for a few days and I'm pretty tired. But I hope you've learned something about Charlie or the Rolling Stones and that it inspires you to have a listen to some of their great music. I was lucky enough to see Charlie playing with the Stones maybe four or five times over the years and I always have some great memories of those gigs. If you like the episode, please subscribe, rate, tell a friend and check out some past episodes and playlists on the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com. And I've also put an ISO performance, if you can't always get what you want, recorded in April 2000, which I'm not sure, but it probably is Charlie's last performance. And he's using sticks and cases and chairs as his drum kit. Just to lighten the mood in here a bit, I'm going to add this. Charlie Watts was such a humble human and understated first song musician, and I hope he would frown on this steaming pile of overblown piece of too much of everything frog shit. Charlie, we will miss you. Let's just stop that there. And as always, if you think I've missed something in this free podcast that had me not sleeping for three days, please send me an email at please go good self at hotpants.cock.nobjockey forward slash cockgoblin. And I'll get back to you as soon as I give a shit. But seriously, you can say hi on Instagram or Facebook, a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast. And I'll be posting a lot of Rolling Stones and Charlie stuff there this week. And if you want to hit me up on Instagram or Facebook, I still have some sticker and guitar pick packs, which I'm happy to post anywhere in the world. If you want one, just hit me up and I'll send one out to you. And I'll be back next week with part two of Arrested. And thanks again so much for listening. RIP to the great man Charlie Watts and good health to everyone else. Thanks again, guys. Be safe and I'll see ya.